I like beer. I drink beer. I still like beer. Have you not heard of this? I don't think I've heard this part. Oh, my I've God. Heard- Welcome to this week's edition of the NinersNation.com Better Rivals Podcast. My name is Oscar, and this week, in honor of Patrick Mahomes, I'm doing this entire podcast left-handed. It is uh, 8.12 p.m. Central, and OU still sucks. And on this Womp Womp Wednesday, with the return of the Elegant Tank, comes special guest David Newman, analyst at Pro Football Focus. David, how the hell are you doing? I'd just like to point out that I do every podcast left-handed. That's because you're a normal, you're a lefty. Which it, it suck it sucks playing hey. basketball against you. I mean, true. Uh, it's it's always fun for like the first like few minutes before people realize that you're left-handed when they try to like push you left. I'm like, yeah, this is great. <laughs> this is exactly what I'm looking for here. <laughs> All right, so you're back for another week. Jared actually couldn't be here. He had a school-related function. Uh, I imagine him in front of a PTA, Kavanaugh-like, with a glass of water, teary-eyed, recounting stories uh, of his youth. Uh, but he couldn't make it. You think he's going to start at 11? <laughs> he's going to start at 11 and take it right to a 15. Uh, that sounds just like Jared. It really does. So Jared's <laughs> here in spirit, but he's not going to be with us this week. Hopefully he can come back for next week. But it, it's definitely a Womp Womp Wednesday, and it's the return of the Elegant Tank. For those that are uninitiated, David, remind folks what the Elegant Tank is all about. It's this really great thing where you're not like so terrible that the games aren't even fun to watch, that you're kind of competitive still. But you continue to lose all of them, which is really the most important thing uh, so that, of course, you can get that sweet, sweet high draft pick. Yeah, it is not about tank tops and backwards white hats. We're not we're not necessarily into the bro life, but it is indeed an elegant tank. And this week, the elegant tank continues. We lost to the formerly San Diego Chargers, 27 to 29. It's still weird to call. I will. I don't think ever be over that. I don't, I don't know that I'm going to do They'll it. always be San Diego. Yeah, I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. Uh, and actually confirmed that uh, Philip Rivers still has 13 of his children in San Diego. The other 17 somewhere on the 405. Imagine how many kids he'd have if he'd played in, in Buffalo. Buffalo. <laughs> I love it. I absolutely love it. But so we opened up, of course, it's, it's the first game of the Casey Jarrett Bethard era. Now with the new look 49ers and he played about as well as you can expect. That's the first thing that we think when reviewing the game against the Chargers over 23% of his throws were positively graded. His two interceptions were not on him whatsoever. One of them was a stupid, ridiculous play by Derwin James. The other was a stupid play by Garrett Selleck. So overall, he played about as well as you could expect for the second round quarterback or not second round quarterback, (laughs) second year quarterback. There you go. Um, yeah, I think, you know, when we talked about last week uh, and kind of what realistic expectations should be for him, because, yeah, I think a lot of people, uh, I think it's reasonable to expect, you know, a, a somewhat of an improvement from year one to year two. I think that's kind of a natural progression uh, that a lot of quarterbacks take. You know, hopefully things are a little bit slower for them at that point. But, you know, when we were trying to set expectations for this game and kind of him going forward the rest of the year, it was like, Okay, last year he had issues doing even some basic things well, right? It was uh, missing the open receivers that were schemed open uh, and and just not doing kind of that baseline expected behavior from quarterbacks. And so I think that was what we were really looking for, right? It's not about making uh, the the crazy high-end throws. It's not about... Uh, finding your third read and and making a, an on the mark throw like uh, any of that high level stuff, I think is still kind of 
uh, would be well above expectation for what we know about him right now. And so it was just, can he do the basic things? If, if a player is schemed open or if a player wins a one-on-one matchup uh, and he's got an open receiver to throw to, and that's going to be in, in kind of the first area he's looking, can he find that guy, get him the ball accurately? Uh, and I think largely he absolutely did that. Yeah, one of the things that we were looking for was whether or not he'd be able to actually complete passes to open receivers, whether or not he would be able to take advantage of the receivers that Shanahan schemed open. And by and large, he was able to. It's not something he was able to do at all times last year. And I think it was Peter King who had a stat in, in his article, and I, I can't find it right now, but we're talking about like the percentage of throws that quarterbacks uh, are throwing to open receivers for the top quarterbacks in the league. So like Jared Goff has something about 40% or 30% of his uh, receivers that he's thrown this year have been wide open. Right. Um, and and that, that, that's the case when you have young, innovative coaches that are putting their quarterbacks in the best places, in the best opportunity to succeed. And not every quarterback can take advantage of that. We've talked about how Brian Hoyer wasn't always able to take advantage of that, but that should be the expectation for, you know, an average level quarterback in the NFL. And good old Casey Jarrett achieved that level in this game. He was average to above average and, and did some pretty remarkable things. Definitely. I, again, I think if, if that was the level of play that we got from him going forward, I think that would be uh, very much a win, right? I, I think uh, this this seems to be kind of, uh, as well as I would really expect him to play. And maybe, you know, I think everybody, uh, once you get to the NFL level is maybe not everybody, but a lot of players are capable of like putting together a good run, right? And maybe he has one game here and there where he's quite a bit better than that. Maybe he has a, a game or two where he's quite a bit worse. But I think if this is kind of where he lands for the rest of the season, uh, I, I think they do, they can remain competitive as long as, you know, they don't continue to just have offensive linemen drop like flies, but well, that, that was a big problem in the game this week was was the offensive line because pressure was a huge problem that there is. I think I was I started laughing when we were looking at film last night and you were like, what is it about defenders that what was it about? What, I forget exactly what you said about his face. Dude, so, I mean, it was he takes some like incredible hits. Right. And it's like I think a lot's been made about his his toughness and willingness to stand in there and, and all that stuff, which is is great and fine and, and wonderful. But it, it's like. He just has this knack for just having people unload on him. And it's like it's like defenders are trying to take about, take out all of their rage and hatred for Nickelback on Bethard, like every time they hit him. And it just like comes out like there was some of the shots that you take and you're just like it, you get like taken aback by it. Watching him like, oh, my God, what just happened there? Uh, and he just looks like a rag doll sometimes the way some of these defenders just toss him to the ground. So you feel for the guy a little bit, but it's also like. Damn, man, get out of the way sometimes. Do, do something. The, the offensive line certainly didn't help. There were a couple of plays where I feel like even uncharacteristically, because while the offensive line hasn't performed uh, swimmingly over the course of these four games, I don't remember there being too many pretty obvious and clear breakdowns like there were against the San Diego Chargers. You still, still call them San Diego. Uh, there, th- there was one play that I tweeted out last night where Lakin Tomlinson just completely ignores a down lineman. And the down lineman, the defensive tackle, just has a free and clear path to Beathard. Gets a pretty nasty hit on him. Luckily, Beathard is able to complete the pass under pressure, and it ends up being a successful play. But it's rare that a defensive lineman gets such a free shot on a quarterback because they're the guys who are always accounted for. It's linebackers and maybe some moving around that can sometimes confuse protections and get them to slide one way, and and then maybe someone shoots off the other side. But it's really, really rare 
that an unblocked defensive lineman just is like, wait, what? And has a straight shot to the quarterback. And it sucks because, you know, I think those ones are frustrating because those are are more like, you know, mental errors, like mental errors or or some sort of communication breakdown about what uh, what sort of protection they wanted to go with um, to where you have just like a D tackle that's unblocked. Right. I think that's uh, that's pretty frustrating because that should be stuff that's avoidable. Uh, I mean, there were also plays, though, like. Uh, there, there was a play where Richburg got bowled back into Beathard's lap on a three-step drop. It's just like that shit shouldn't be happening. Um, you know, that it's pretty rough when, when you're looking to get the ball out basically as quick as possible, right? Three-step drop, ball's coming out of his hand, and as he's releasing it, Richburg's in his lap and, and, and uh, getting driven back by a defender. And, and so you had uh, some plays like that. I mean, uh, old Gary Gilliam on the, the left tackle. Excuse you, excuse you. Uh, You've been away for a bit, so I know it's understandable. Yeah, you You, you forget. It's Garigiam. Go ahead, you can say it. Nah, I'm not going to do the. the Oh, please do. Please do. Absolutely not. Uh, Damn it. He was. uh, I mean, he was awful, uh, largely. So, uh, yeah, it's going to be tough. I mean, um, that's going to be the big thing. Is I, I, I think you want to have him not get, I don't know, hit within the first two seconds of his drop back. That seems like a, a reasonable target to me. So. I was ready for Nick Mullins. I was like, give me the Mullins time, man. Let's see it. Dude, some of those, it looked like he should have been warming up over there. <laughs> yeah, he took some shots, he was. man. It was rough. He was. But the, the Niners did adjust once Joe Staley went out of the game and Garrigiam goes in. He, the, the Niners ended up going to a lot more quick game in the third quarter. They had 10, 10 quick game plays throughout the entire game. Six of them were in the third quarter. But even then, they could only complete two of them. Because it didn't matter whether or not they were moving to the quip game or whether or not they stayed with their with their five and seven step drops, Bethard was just getting hit left and right. So it didn't really matter. He was going to get hit, and he was going to have to, you know, go go true grit and borrow Trent Taylor's hard hat and his lunch pail and just get to work. And just for reference on that, uh, in terms of how much of a departure that was from kind of what Shanahan is typically looking to do, going quick game that often. So ten quick game plays in this game was more than Garoppolo had in the first three combined, right? So if you listen last week, um, you know, heard say seven dropbacks was basically all that Garoppolo had in the quick game, which is, again, that quick timing, three-step drop under center, kind of like one step, one shuffle from the gun. Um, But, you know, the idea of getting the ball out very quickly to quick routes on the outside, kind of that old-school West Coast stuff. Um, and, And it's not something that you see necessarily a ton it's not like a a high volume part of most offenses uh definitely not for shanahan you know they want to use the play action game uh they want to push the ball downfield it's that intermediate area that they love to hit they like to take the occasional deep shot and that's kind of what their passing game is built around and so to see them have to make that adjustment and be like look we're just getting killed back there we can't protect for that long we have to go uh basically to three-step on on everything and and throw it that often uh, I, I just think is a, a product of the the offensive line and kind of the state that they were in by the time that second half rolled around. Now, one thing that was fun to watch because watching the snuff film that was CJ Beathard's game, uh, one thing that was fun to watch was George Kittle versus Derwin James. They they had a good back and forth. There was a couple. There were a couple of reps that Kittle won. There were, of course, a couple of reps that Derwin won. And, and at the end of the day, his team got the W. So I think you know you, you give him a little nudge at the end of the game, especially given his impact on that last interception. But when you think of of the matchup, five of Kittle's eight targets came with James in primary coverage. He caught three for twenty one yards. 
and he converted two first downs. Uh, and my favorite one was probably the one where he gives him the, the little shake and bake, the, what looked like a Texas route. I don't think it was a Texas route. Yeah, just uh, that little, I mean, uh, getting him lined up in the backfield, which I think was cool. Um, you know, not honestly something I paid a ton of attention to through the first few weeks. So I don't know if that was something that was new, but definitely saw him. It wasn't uh, new. It wasn't. It may have been new for Kittle, but it wasn't new in general. There, they've been, there have been snaps throughout the season where they've lined sure. up wide receivers back there. They totally. lined up Pettis back there. They've lined up a couple different uh, players back there in the backfield. They're basically trying to simulate Jarek McKinnon yeah i mean uh and i think that's a, a good way to do it right you can get some good matchups there um but yeah i don't know if this was the first for kittle but either way i mean he had uh certainly some snaps back there in this game and uh yeah had one of them i think was a third down like third and short third and six uh something like that and uh he got the angle route on derwin james like had a nice move to get open and derwin closed made the tackle wasn't quite in time though was able to pick up the first down so uh, I think, yeah, that was a, a matchup that was kind of fun to watch. You know, only five targets, so you know, not a uh, a huge amount of plays that you get to really see them go at it. But uh, I think those were two of the best players on the field, right? I think very clearly George Kittle has become kind of the best player in this passing game, maybe the best player on this offense right now. Uh, and then Derwin James has just been a ton of fun to watch through the first month of the season. So, uh, yeah, some of their reps were were really great. So the key turning point in the game was really the 21 play drive in the second quarter and then the interception to Selleck in the third quarter. That was where I think the, the game kind of tilted over and it was like, OK, now it's it's fully gone off. the Well, I guess off the rails for as much as it could go off the rails with your backup quarterback. But what happened there on that 21 play on that 21 play drive and how often or how frequent is a drive like that going to happen in the NFL? Uh, so I thought that this was hilarious, right? Uh, of course, the 49ers uh, and, and all of the, like as big of a deal as people have made about their red zone troubles and, and stuff like that. Um, Cause this wasn't a game that I watched live, right? Working on other games at the time. And I happened to check the, the box score and see the drive chart and see 21 plays and then end in a field goal. And I was like, what the hell? How does that even happen? Uh, turns out that that's like actually a relatively common thing. It, I guess if you're, going on 21 play drives maybe your offense should be better and this is just like you're just locking into first down after first down and can't actually uh get the big plays needed to move down the field but uh so pro football reference has a, a drive index and their data goes back to 1999 so about 20 years worth of of drive data there only 17 drives in that time have gone for 20 plays or more Eight of them ended in a field goal. Two of them ended in a block field goal. Only four of those ended in a touchdown. Uh, hilariously, though, the 49ers were one of only three teams with two of those drives. Both of them ended in a field goal. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, just kind of like a, a, a very strange thing that you don't see. I mean, you don't see teams eat up like 10 plus minutes of game clock and on a single drive very often. Right. So I think that was very frustrating, though. You get all the way down there inside the 10, inside the five, I think, maybe even. Right. Um, Penalties. And, yeah, and and be able to only come away with three points there, as a friend of the pod George uh, from PFF likes to say, field goals are just turnovers with a participation trophy. Like they, <laughs> it sucks, right? And it sucks after a twenty-one play drive. So I think that was uh, one of the the key drives there. And then you had the other drive, uh, what in the third quarter there. Yeah, uh, that was another one that, that was kind of a big point. Yeah, because at that point, Beathard has had pretty much the best drive of the game so far. The, the Niners started on their eight yard line and in four plays uh, or no, they started on their 10 yard line and in four plays they get to the los angeles eight yard line and then they throw a pick i mean for just chunk play after chunk play after chunk play and then the, the offense is humming all of a sudden you have a chance to to get the, the go-ahead touchdown and 
you know, I guess it goes off of the wristwatch that Sel- that Selleck was wearing so that he could tell time. <laughs> and it goes into someone else's hands. And all of a sudden, uh, I've, the only saving grace was that the Niners rallied and made the tackle and ended up keeping the, the charges to a field goal. Right. But I think that's, yeah, if you want to look at, you know, I think a lot of fans certainly feel like this was a game that they uh, could have and maybe even should have won with the way things played out. And I think to me, like those two drives in particular are the ones that you really look to that, that should have been the difference in the game, right? Like ending up with only three points on those two drives that both went inside the 10 yard line uh, is really tough. It, it's really tough when you can't come away with points when you're, you're that deep into opponent territory there. So I think, yeah, that's that's kind of what I look at as the difference in this game. Now, on defense, we're going to try and introduce some nuance to the whole Robert Sala thing because the wave amongst everyone, and there is some merit to it, is that Robert Sala is an atrocious defensive coordinator and he needs to be fired, or if you're in England, he needs to be sacked, and which I think is a funny pun, but, nice. you know, it works. Now, with, with, with Sala, of course, last week, you heard us give our biggest gripes about Sala, and that was more about his decision-making when it came to personnel and some of his decision-making when it came to in-game decisions, specifically even around personnel. That trend continued, but where he is not failing is his defensive game plan and in his general scheme, because those two things are sound. When, when you look at his defensive game plan against the Chargers, it was actually really solid. The Niners opened up with some fires on blitzes and generally played a lot more man coverage, which is a little bit surprising to me given the quality of wide receiver that you were going up against uh, in Los Angeles. And the fact that the San Diego, Jesus, still can't do it. The fact that the Los Angeles Chargers uh, offense was actually playing pretty well. And given how banged up the Niners were in the secondary, I would have thought, oh, he's going to stick to zone. But no, he came out aggressive. He blitzed. And especially early on in the game, it really, really started to work. The 49ers played cover one, so man coverage underneath, 46% of the time against the Chargers, which is way above their season total or their season average, which was 29% going into the Chargers game. So he definitely had a game plan that was built to try and beat the Chargers. And by and large, especially early, it worked. Definitely. And I think that like the 29%, I think is even after last week, right? I think it was even lower going into the game. It was around like 23% or something like that. So it wasn't a big part of it. And that is something that has actually been, um, you know, that's not just like a this scheme type of thing, right? Seattle has definitely used a lot more man coverage, uh, you know, over the time that they've been running that scheme there. Uh, you will see like Atlanta and, and of course, Jacksonville run some more man coverage there. So I, I think it's something that he definitely needed to implement a little bit more, um, especially when you don't. I, I mean, it's tough, right? Because when you don't have the quality of talent uh, that, that some of those other teams do, right? I think there's no no question that at this stage, guess what? They're not the Jaguars defense right now. They're not those peak Seahawks defenses, right? They just don't have that level of player. Regardless of how many players they're going to try and sign from the 2012 (laughs) Seahawks team. Exactly. They're not the the 2012 Seahawks. Yeah, so I think, you know, with this scheme and the cover three in general and why those teams have been successful running that is because they have these incredible athletes on the back end that can cover a lot of ground, right? So you have uh, players that can cover all this space because, Zone can end up bad if you have bad players back there because you end up with very wide open throws, right? The thing with man is most of the time, unless some guy just gets absolutely destroyed, right? Which can definitely happen if you have like a great receiver you're going against. But in large part, you're at least forcing tighter throws, right? You're in the area. You're nearby the guy because you're manned up on him, right? It's not guys just running free through the secondary like can happen in, in bad zone coverage at times. So, Playing more man coverage and at least mixing that in more often 
forces quarterbacks to make some of those tighter throws. If you're playing cover one well and you're playing, uh, you know, with the proper leverage, a lot of times you're forcing throws more to the outside of the field, which are longer distance, tougher, lower percentage throws. And so that's kind of like the philosophy running cover one is, is yeah, I want to throw a lot of resources in the middle of the field to kind of take away some of that easy stuff, make sure guys aren't running completely free, force the longer, low percentage throws to the outside. And uh, I, I think that was something that that definitely uh, at least helped a little bit in this game. I mean, again, the talent is what it is at this point, and, and they're not going to be great back there. But I think you want to do at least what you can to help put them in better situations. And I think that's the nuance that I really want to stress about Salah is that he doesn't have absolute control over every single one of the personnel decisions that the Niners have made on defense. He certainly has control on how he deploys that talent, which is absolutely a big gripe and one thing that I think should count as a, as a strike against Salah, how he uses Solomon Thomas, how he kind of, even in this game, rotates players in the secondary, how he starts with, uh, in the third quarter or in the fourth quarter, he's got just rotating defensive backs. He's like, oh, you know what? Let me go ahead and throw Jimmy Ward out there and Akella Witherspoon. And then maybe I'll just go with Witherspoon and Mabin. Like, just because, it seems like. And we're going to get to Mabin a little bit later, but those, I think, are the decisions that really infuriate me. It is not that he is a terrible schematic defensive coordinator. Uh, it's not that his game plans are necessarily atrocious. I think it's that he, he doesn't necessarily have the talent on defense right now, and then he exacerbates that by making poor in-game decisions on how he uses that talent. Definitely. And I think, you know, we hit on a lot of those last week, so there's no no reason to really go through all of them. But absolutely, that's the biggest thing. I think the D-line's a problem. Using continue, Continuing to use players on significant snaps like Malcolm Smith and Earl Mitchell, like, there, there's things that just don't make sense, right? Uh, and you mentioned some of the other ones. So I think that's by far the, the area that he needs to improve. And uh, again, the scheme isn't really the issue here. You know, I, 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 we know from many other examples around the league uh, that this scheme works and it can be effective if you have the right players in place and and you're kind of executing at a high level. And I think right now they don't have really either one of those things. Now, the one thing that exacerbates some of the, the talent issues is when you have missed tackles and, and missed assignments. And the Niners had that in this game in droves. Missed tackles, of course, have been a story for the year. But missed tackles, especially in this scheme, are especially troublesome because this scheme is meant to funnel passes down in the underneath zones so that your team can fly up and tackle. If you can't make that tackle, the the defense begins to break down. Everything falls apart. There were several occasions where the 49ers were great in coverage. They did not have they did not give Philip Rivers a space to throw. And so he checks it down to Melvin Gordon or he checks it down to Austin Eckler or anyone on the underneath and the Niners try to come up and make a tackle and they can't. And now a 2-yard gain turns into a five, six, seven, or eight-yard gain in a manageable third down. Those are the things that keep offenses on schedule, and that's not Robert Sala's fault. Now, I honestly kind of want to do a bit of research into how coaches coach tackling, quite frankly, just to see if that's something that he can really control. I personally don't think it's that big of a deal because Sala can't put on pads and go out there and make tackles. So he can train them all the hell he wants, but if they don't actually execute as tacklers, it's not going to matter what the hell he does, right? Um, so, you know, but I'd, that's just something I probably want to explore a bit later. But it, that that is the part, I think, that is also a, a talent issue, quite frankly. Right. I mean, think about, if you think back to those Harbaugh-era 49ers Seahawks games, right? And what was so frustrating from the 49ers' perspective offensively in those games, right, is it felt like, they couldn't do anything. It was just dink and dunk. There was no shots downfield. They, they weren't able to pick up any big plays. 
And that's it. That's the peak of this defense, right? So everything that this, the, the way this defense is structured is we want to put a lid on everything. We, we want to take away the deep plays. We, we don't want to allow any of those 20 plus plays. We're going to get deep in our drops. We're going to force all of those throws underneath. And then ideally they're, they've got the athletes in place to cover ground quickly to be able to, when they make those underneath throws, you have a defender that's arriving very soon after that to be able to make a tackle. And then they make that tackle, right? you think of the, the Seahawks players, very good tackling team. I mean, Bobby, Bobby Wagner has been one of the best tacklers in the NFL for a long time. Uh, Earl Mitchell, or excuse me, Earl Thomas whoa, is great. Whoa. Yeah. Sorry. Very frustrated. That's I'm sorry, Earl Thomas. That's, uh, that's just <laughs> disrespect that you don't deserve right now. Well, when you take away uh, one of Earl Thomas's legs, he's probably better than Earl Mitchell. Yeah, probably. Uh, I'd even put him at nose tackle before I put Earl Mitchell at <laughs> nose tackle, maybe. Uh, but, but that's beside the point. But yeah, so when when you're missing those tackles, like you mentioned, the, the, the whole structure breaks down and, and it doesn't work because you can't play a bend not, but not break defense. If you break. And then if you continue to break underneath yeah. uh, when, when you're getting the offense to do what you want to do uh, and check down like that. So... Uh, yeah, it's tough. I mean, they're just not going to be successful defensively if that is the way things continue. So the last thing that we think is that we're at the quarter poll, the quarter season poll of the season, uh, and the Niners are exactly where we would expect them to be right now. We, when we were looking at the schedule before the season started, we thought, man, those first four games, like that Detroit game is probably the game they win, and it's going to be tough for them to win the other games. And, and despite the injuries and everything else, they're about where we thought they would be in the first quarter of the season. Now, of course, losing Jimmy Garoppolo is a huge blow, and, and we certainly didn't expect that, nor did we want that. But going out of the first four games, this is where we thought the Niners would be. They've been competitive against some teams that were, um, you know, kind of probably will end up middle of the pack teams. They got boat raced by uh, a Chiefs team that, you know, took their foot off the pedal, and, and here we are. But this is this is year two of a significant rebuild where the Niners have a completely different roster than they had just a couple of years ago. And while I think there may be something to, there may be some areas to quibble with in terms of the speed at which they've acquired talent at some key areas, edge. Uh, I I do think that the Niners are exactly where we would think they, where we would expect them to be thus far. Definitely. Uh, You know, not maybe how we would have expected them to get there necessarily. Like you mentioned, there's certainly been some unexpected things and injuries, uh, while something that you always have to deal with and every team is going to have to deal with to some degree, um, they just aren't at a point from a, from a roster depth standpoint to be able to handle the, handle the volume of injuries they've dealt with so far this season. And so, uh, especially when you get one at the most important position at quarterback and, and lose the player that really elevated your offense last year to a completely different level. Uh, it's tough and, and it's going to be tough going forward. But yeah, I think the way this first month has gone, at least when you look at straight wins and losses, like not terribly surprising. So let's get to our spotlight players for the game. And my first spotlight player is going to be one Mr. Greg Mabin. He had an elite coverage grade, 91.5 on just 29 snaps. One of those guys that, you know, was curiously rotated in. And what do you know? He actually played fairly well. His most impressive play was when he broke up that pick play on the goal line because that's not usually a play that a corner can break up all by himself. And, and he played very, very strong. He got his hands on the receiver, and he realized, hey, I'm within one yard. I can actually hit you, and it's not going to be that big of a deal. And, and he was able to break up that pass on the goal line, and and eventually the Chargers did what they were going to do anyway. But at least on that one play, Maven had a, a solid grade and, and overall graded very well. 
this is an example, I think, of a young guy that should be getting snaps and it, all things being equal, even though this was Jimmy Ward's best game of, of this season so far. If those two are equal, play Maben, play more. Ward's not going to be here next year, especially not at his yeah. salary. So just play the guys, figure out what you got and go on. Definitely. I think you got to get some of those young players snaps. I mean, that's the, that's a big thing defensively is getting these young players experience. Now, li- uh, listeners, I'm going to give you about three seconds to put in your mind who you think David's spotlight player of the week is going to be. Do you have it? Do you have it in your mind? Uh, David, what's your spotlight player? Man, we're going George Kittle again. <laughs> again. I'm a guest now. I get to just make things up as it goes. Like, there are no rules. Uh, it, it, it's great. So, I mean, I don't know who else you could pick, right? Like, I, I think he's just been incredible so far. Uh, you know, so far over the course of the season, highest graded tight end in the NFL for us right now is the only tight end Say what? Uh, with a 90 overall grade or higher. He has 209. So this is, the I think, the big part, right, that's, that's really great is what he's doing once he has the ball in his hands. 209 yards after the catch leads all tight ends. Five forced missed tackles. Second. Like, He's he's getting it's not like a, a tight end thing where I'm just going to get open in the middle of the field and I'm going to catch some of these open passes and then somebody's going to come up and tackle me and I'm going to like an efficient chain mover. But that's kind of about it. Like he is the most right now with with Goodwin kind of, you know, not being fully himself like he is the most explosive player on this offense right now. Um, he is not a sneaky good athlete. He is just a very good athlete like as a reminder, if you've been listening to this podcast since the, that draft class came in, the number one spark tight end of that draft class, which was a freaky athletic draft class, right? There were uh, We talked about like how they needed to get a tight end out of this group because it was just so rare when you looked at the number of players that were coming in uh, with just this excellent athleticism. and OJ and Howard, Dan yeah. Joku, all those um, guys. A lot of really good players came out of that draft from the tight end class, so... Uh, and I think he was, you know, right there at the top of that list for us and, and was obviously a very good fit and, and thought that he could do well. And so to see him healthy, which he wasn't always last year and, and continuing to make plays and be a big part of this offense has been really great. All right. So let's hit the rundown. Those midweek stories or little tidbits of info that we think are uh, notable throughout the week as we get to the preview to the Arizona Cardinals. Number one, Pro Football Focus released their first quarter all pro teams and the 49ers received two mentions george kittle starting tight end uh, effectively a first team all pro for all the reasons that <laughs> david mentioned and then you've got your second 49er mention that's going to be one mr matt Breida, the real cheetah if you believe the uh, presidential alerts from earlier today <laughs> that tweet was awesome by the way uh he received an honorable mention in the pff first quarter all pro team uh, which is pretty phenomenal all things considered i mean that, this class and and what do those two guys have in common if you've listened to this podcast, you should know exactly where this is going. They were both the number one Peace Park athletes in their class at their respective positions. I thought you were going to say they were both generational talents that we clearly took with our two first-round picks. No. Uh, no, is that not how it worked? No, I, I think um, one thing to, to call out on Breida really quick before we move on is uh, it's been very impressive so far through at least one month. We'll see if this sticks around. Hopefully it does. Uh, he has made significant strides as a receiver so far. I think that was kind of uh, really the big question for him going into year two was very bad there last year. The 49ers' backfield as a whole was probably the worst from a receiving standpoint in the entire league. Uh, so far, yet to drop a pass. 
Uh, I want to say it he's, was, he's the sixth greatest. Yeah. He has the sixth greatest receiving grade for a running back. Yeah. So uh, just a huge step going from like somewhere in the 30s. I want to say something really low uh, receiving grade to now up into the 80s uh, is is a very big jump up in, in performance there. And I think that's a big part. I mean, he, right now he's the fourth highest graded uh, running back in the entire league. And so for him to be doing that well, obviously speaks to what he's doing as a runner. But I think more so especially where we're coming from. I mean, you got to contribute as a, as a receiver in order to get that kind of grade and that kind of praise. So I think that's a, a big prop to him. And, and I think what one play exemplifies that against the chargers. And it was the, the play that almost broke the game open in the fourth quarter. It was, oh, that, screen, yeah, yeah, it was yeah. that screen pass where they get it out to, to Brita and he makes a couple of guys miss. He's got blockers out in front and, and there's just one defensive tackle who makes a hustle play. Yeah, which is insane, right? So he, uh, the burst to get through there, so he catches that little screen, like makes two guys take bad angles because they're just not expecting that kind and of speed. And it wasn't a great ball. Like he uh, kind of had, it was off his frame and he kind of had to go and get it. And then you just see like very strangely, like they slowed him down just enough kind of with those deflecting off of him missed tackles uh, that this D tackle chases him down from behind, which was just kind of an insane play. And I mean, honestly, he was that he was housing that play. There were two. If, there were there two chargers left, and he had two blockers in front. Yeah, there and was just the. I think it was Hayward was the backside corner who was like coming over the on top. it, trying yep. to come over the top and get that pursuit angle in, and and uh, and that was it. And, and yeah, I think he, the blockers out in front. Uh, we've seen what he can do in the open field. Like I think it was over. All right. So next story in the rundown is a little bit of speculation. Fans like to speculate and gotten a couple mentions slash tweets about Earl Thomas. Uh, the he's now probably played his last down in Seattle. Should the 49ers make another run at another 30 ish former Legion of Boomer when he becomes available likely next year? I don't know, man. It's so it's so conflicting. Um I mean, obviously, it worked out great with Sherman before he got hurt, right? He was playing super well. Um, and, and I think that this type of injury isn't really a reason to believe like it wasn't a displaced fracture or anything like that's crazy. Like it seems to be pretty straightforward. It's going to heal up and he's going to be fine. And you would assume that he's at least going to be playing as well as he was playing this year, which was still really freaking good. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. Like I wouldn't necessarily hate the idea of it. Uh, he's a, he's like the best at that position in the league, right? He's been doing it for a while. I do hesitate a little bit at the idea of giving a player like he's going to want and he will get from some team long term money, significant money. Yeah, and he should. Uh, And he he absolutely should. He absolutely deserves that Uh, from the 49ers standpoint, team building standpoint. I don't know. I could see certainly a good argument against it, but um, it's interesting. I'll I'll give it that. I think it's interesting. I think if the Niners are going to pay someone a lot of money, that should be at edge. And so I think that they should reserve their whatever piggy bank they've got for that. And I think there's there's maybe enough talent at safety to to do well with some combination of Colbert or DJ Reed or something like that and, and kind of go from there. So, again, don't hate it, but it's it's it probably wouldn't be one of my priorities. Solomon Thomas logged 10 pass rushes from the interior. Earl Mitchell, 17. One of the things about Robert Sala that we absolutely dislike it's not a scheme. Just insanity. It's I not a scheme. Don't. It's just the decision-making when it comes to personnel. Solomon Thomas, first four third-down plays, Thomas was rushing from the interior. And that's when the defense was playing at its best. Like, I, I just don't understand how you can watch the tape from these games and see how things play out when, I don't know, either one of those players is on the field and decide, you know what? Yeah, I need more Earl Mitchell rushing the passer. 
Like that's that's what this defense really needs right now. To me, the, uh, the it makes equi- no sense. The equivalent to me in this case is taking a spread, doing what people did to quarterbacks 10, 15 years ago, where they take a, a spread quarterback, a quarterback that can do certain things very, very well, and then say, all right, uh, for week one, you have to do everything different. And you have to get under center, and you have to do three-step dropbacks, and your entire terminology is going to change. And then after four games, go, mm, moving the wide receiver. Right, like, but now people understand that's not what you do. You put players in positions to succeed, and that transition is aided by doing things that they did very well in college. And what did Solomon do? What did Solomon Thomas do very well in college? He rushed from the interior the majority of the time. That's where he played. That's where he was great. And Sala, with a whole season's worth of evidence, says, "Nah, I'll take Earl Mitchell." Yeah, I mean that's like one of the the top things that we've learned. I mean, um, so our analytics team has been doing a lot of work, you know, over this past off season and continuing uh, with what from the college data that we have. We have all this this college data that's coming up now that's building up, and what what is actually translatable, right, from from there to the pro game, and that's one of the biggest things. Pass rushing is definitely something. Uh, that translates very heavily right now. R.I.P. Harold Landry. Uh, and it, it's like, uh, and having players continue to do what they did well in college, right? Allowing them to continue to do those things when they get to the pro level. If they were uh, an outside cornerback, let them play outside cornerback. If they were a slot guy, let them continue to play in the slot, right? Same thing here. Like he was an interior rusher. And look, it's one thing if you're like, okay, maybe we have a, we have a pretty big need on the edge. Like we think maybe he can translate there be the first to admit we were those people, right? We thought that he could go out and be an edge player. With, uh, with his athletic profile, the positional value that you would get if you hit with him on the edge was far greater yes. and it was worth the experiment. Yeah, so try it out. But at this point, it's very clear that it's not working, right? That, that he's a better interior player. So if you want to line him up a, a, on the edge and base downs, like who cares? I don't care about those downs anyway. Like when you go to your sub packages and you need guys to get after the quarterback, he needs to be inside. Like him and DeForest Buckner should be your leading snap getters on the inside rushing the passer. And it shouldn't be really close. And, and I think this right was now the, this was the first game that he outsnapped Eric Armstead. Yeah, and it's and it's not even on those pass rush snaps too. It's it like Solomon Thomas has been uh, one of the lowest guys in there, the lowest that's like a regular in the rotation. He's been at the bottom of that, uh, and, and even though this was his highest snap total, like still rushing there, high. still was like fifth or sixth on the team. Like yep. it was just is just insane. But so the apparently the benching players is the preferred method of lighting a fire under someone's ass for the defense because Adrian Colbert is likely regaining his starting spot when he comes back and is fully healthy next week. There was, of course, some question because Shanahan made some ambiguous comments about Colbert maybe getting his spot back after he was injured because DJ Reed was playing, I guess, kind of well and played average, played decently, not not bad, not great. But looks like Colbert will start again now that he's healthy. And finally, Jimmy Ward had the best game of his final 49er season thus far. He's on his farewell tour. He's going to have his end-of-the-road concert at Levi's. They're going to need to put down new sod. And this was the best game of the, his last campaign. So let's switch and talk about the Cardinals because this is a winnable game. Yay! <laughs> 49ers favored by four and a half. Let's talk. Uh, let's for, well, Hold on. First of all, before we talk about Josh Rosen. I see this note here, and I'm very intrigued. Dude, dude, you missed so much while you were gone. <laughs> so uh, I had I did division previews, of course. These are like the first four episodes right after you left. Mm-hmm. And we had someone on from the Revenge of the Birds. 
his name, Blake Murphy from Revenge of the Birds. And I feel like we maybe had him on. We did. We had him on two years ago, two or three years ago, maybe. And and th- that was one of those years where he came on and he was like, oh, yeah, they're going to go 10 and six. And, and, and we were like, ha, you dumb. Was that the guy that we like shit all over on Carson Pal- about Carson Palmer playing yes. 16 games? And then Carson Palmer had the best like season of his career. That's exactly right. Cool. And then it was the next season that Aaron Donald killed our- Carson Palmer. Yeah. We were just a season late. <laughs> <laughs> and so we're, we're kind of going back and forth. And, and I'm, you know, I'm asking him questions and he's just he is very, very positive about his Cardinals. Incredibly positive. And, you know, and so, you know, I was like, well, what about this? What about this? And it was just like, I don't I don't see how all this adds up. His final season prediction was that the the Cardinals would end up seven and nine and that they would be in playoff contention late and just kind of lose it near the end. If I remember correctly, Um, he was really, really up on a lot of the things that they would do. He but it was just hilarious that he was like, you know, this is just it's going to be great. They're going to they're going to have their lottery. Everything. If everything breaks right, I'm like. Because it always breaks right. That's how things work. That's how work, you should right? make predictions. Yeah, you should yeah. definitely always and, uh, and yeah, it goes seven and nine. Uh, how the Chargers, or how the Chargers, Jesus. Uh, how the Cardinals doing, David? Uh, they're probably the worst team in football through yeah. the first month. <laughs> so that's cool. I, <laughs> I mean, the Buffalo Bills might have something to say about that. But I mean, you know, Josh Allen's doing his best. But it, yeah, the, the, this is not, not a good Cardinals team. They're a little better now that they've got old bad face Rosen, but oh, is it Darnold? Darn, Darnold's got the bad face. Oh yeah. man, I just want to. I just want to call all these quarterbacks bad face quarterbacks. I <laughs> Let's want do it. it. It's fine. I want all these bad face quarterbacks. Just uh, cite anonymous scout, you know. So <laughs> Josh Rosen, he's given the team a bit of life, and that's in part because he's making some really ridiculous big time throws. He's logging a big time throw uh, on eleven point four percent of his attempts and. For those that are uninitiated, David, what the hell is a big time throw? Uh, they're basically so those are our highest graded throws. They they are the 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 toughest throws to make, right? They're the downfield throws. A lot of times you're talking about throws with very good timing, accuracy, um, could be into tight coverage. Those are those very tight window red zone throws. You know, they're the most difficult ones. Uh, and they're the ones that can kind of separate the very best quarterbacks from just kind of the mediocre or the not so good. So Guys that are making those throws, and it is something that's not quite as stable, right? So you will see uh, some variance in that from season to season. Guys can have uh, just insane years where they're making uh, a ton of crazy throws like that and, and getting a lot of big time throws and then see that come back down to earth in following years. So I think that's something uh, definitely to watch with Rosen having that high a percentage, uh, you know, through just what a game and some change right now. But Absolutely. When you looked at his game last week from uh, against the Seahawks, like that was what stood out the most were those throws downfield because he was a little shaky uh, on some of the underneath stuff. And it wasn't certainly like a flawless performance from him, but he was overall still very good. I mean, this was one of the highest graded uh, performances from a rookie quarterback that we've had. And, And so like he was putting the ball on the money, like downfield. Some of these, like there was a throw uh, that he had like up the sideline, up the left sideline there. Three defenders. Um, yeah. He, he had to throw it like right in the perfect pocket where, I mean, there was three hands right there and he had one spot to throw it. Only in. Only place. Yeah. And, and he made it. It was a good throw. And, you know, had another one on a corner route that was perfectly placed. He had a couple that were dropped too. like had one on a deep crosser, hit the dude right, uh, right in stride there that he dropped, had another one on a, a very open deep post that, that kind of uh, got behind the coverage there. Under threw it maybe a tad, but it's definitely still very much uh, should have been a big play for the Cardinals. Got that one dropped as well. So 
uh, even had some some opportunity for some more big plays that were kind of left out on the field there because of uh, the receivers that they've got. But uh, yeah, overall, I think it was a, a certainly a very encouraging performance for him and for the Cardinals in, in that first game. Uh, it will be interesting to see. I mean, you you get he gets to go against basically the same defensive scheme two weeks in a row, right? They get a, they they can take a lot of the same stuff that worked. And when they go back and look at that tape and they can kind of shed some of the stuff where uh, maybe wasn't so good and, and look at those areas that he focused on and, and know that they're going to likely be able to attack a lot of the same areas and maybe have worse. I mean, the Seattle defense right now, especially without Thomas back there is, is kind of a shell of what it used to be, but uh, I don't know, maybe still has better players than what the 49ers have out there right now. So now this is a quarterback that likes to push the ball down the field. And one of the things that that Colbert is going to need to be able to do is is withstand the test of a quarterback that likes to throw deep. And there are a couple of matchups I think that I will be watching. One of them is, of course, how Adrian Colbert performs when I think he's going to get tested more often than he has been uh, outside of any game other than maybe the Chiefs. But one receiver that I think I'll be watching is Christian Kirk. Because Christian Kirk is actually having a pretty good start to his season. He's a really, really good route runner. He's a rookie out of Texas A&M. And it's going to be interesting to watch how he plays against whatever the 49ers decide to do at corner. I'm not sure what Robert Sala is going to put on the revolving uh, kind of sushi conveyor belt that is his defensive back unit. And whether it is Greg Mabin, whether it is Jimmy Ward, or whether it's Akella Witherspoon or some combination of the three, let's just duct tape them all together and see if they can like wheelbarrow coverage (laughs) someone. But whatever happens, I'm going to be interested to see what happens with Christian Kirk because I know Larry Fitzgerald is going to get his, especially in the red zone. That's going to be a problem, but I'm already used to Larry Fitzgerald bodying a corner and catching a touchdown. This is going to happen. I know, man. Like, at what point? Like, he's, uh, I think, 35 uh, this year. So, are you sure it's not 53? Are you sure you don't have dyslexia? <laughs> Uh, I mean, wouldn't be surprising at this point. It feels like he's just been destroying us for oh, forever. No, he's 53 in LeBron hairline years. <laughs> oh my. Uh, yeah. I mean, he's probably, get, I mean, he's going to line up in the slot, right. And he's probably going to, going to get his in the middle of the field there. Um, I mean, he's still, he's not peak Larry Fitzgerald, obviously, but he's, but still, he's still Larry Fitzgerald. Larry Fitzgerald. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's... he's, he's going to be a problem. Um, so yeah, I think, uh, you know, how they handle, whether they can finally slow him down and, and prevent him from just having another insane game will be interesting. The best uh, defender on the field for the 49ers is going to be age. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think another one that, that I'm interested in, too, uh, that'll maybe be a little bit more fun and a little bit more youthful uh, is David Johnson and the Niners linebackers. <laughs> I'm sorry, I cracked myself up. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, <laughs> oh, man. I, I, impressed, I impressed myself with that one. That was a good That's good. One. Yeah. That's good. Well done. Well done. Uh, I think David Johnson versus linebackers is going to be interesting to watch. Um, you know, I think though there's certainly been some ups and downs and, and uh, some missed tackles, unfortunately, when, when you look at Warner and Foster, uh, I, I do think that those are players that are very exciting going forward and their future is generally very bright. Uh, and, and I think that they are uh, good at, you know, their strength is what you want linebackers strength to be in today's NFL, which is coverage. And so I think David Johnson, like most of this offense has kind of struggled to get things going through the first month. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if they start, kind of utilizing him a little bit better. I mean, his big strength prior to the injury last season was that he was like one of the guys, I mean, Le'Veon Bell gets a lot of credit for this and he there's certainly merit to that. Uh, but David Johnson, even more so, was used as a receiver, like as an actual receiver, lining up out wide, running receiver 
type routes and, and being able to actually make plays down the field. Like that's one of the things why running backs value isn't even as good as even the ones that are really good at the thing that's most valuable, which is catching the ball. They just catch the ball so close to the line of scrimmage that it's still not as good as just throwing the ball downfield to a receiver, right? So not quite as valuable. He was the one guy that kind of broke that mold and, and was able to get some of those downfield throws this year so far, his average depth of target is very mediocre running back esque, which is like 1.8 yards downfield. So they haven't really been taking advantage of his skill set so far. And, and so I think one, now that Rosen's there, do they feel a little bit more comfortable with what they're doing offensively and look to maybe take some more shots downfield and get him involved uh, in some of that there? And then two, if they do look to do those things, how do Foster and Warner hold up in coverage against him? Yeah, I think specifically when it comes to Foster, I'm looking for him to kind of regress back to his mean when it comes to missed tackles. Because as we were talking, I just got to thinking about what it was, what his missed tackles were like last season. Last season, Foster had 553 snaps that he played. He missed 10 tackles all of last season and 553. And what he missed five or six in that first game back. He's already missed seven this year. So he was missing, uh, he was missing tackles at a rate of 1.8% last year. This year he's at 4.9%. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to expect that that's going to come back down to Ruben Foster levels. And if that happens, then I think, you know, overall it's going to help. I think, Hopefully that's what happens with with the defense and especially with Reuben Foster. So definitely going to be watching David Johnson versus linebackers. I hope that they continue to misuse David Johnson for yeah, the sake please, of the 49ers. Please do. Because that they're not using him effectively. One of the other questions I asked, um, I asked good old Blake. I'm sorry, Blake. But we're, we're invoking the ghost of Blake. But I was talking about the, the Mike McCoy and his offensive scheme and how he's going to kind of go back to old school football and running the football and he was very adamant that you really wanted to build an offense around the running game and and those kinds of things, which I thought was, was well, interesting. I mean, is okay. it still the year of our Lord 2018? <laughs> uh, I believe, yes, that's uh, correct. Uh, our, our, not. our Lord and Savior died. This is now officially year yeah. zero. He blew out his knee. We are now after, <laughs> we are now after death. AG. Uh, yeah, we are, AG. we are AJG. AJ after Jimmy. I like going Jimmy. Yeah. We're first name basis. So the next thing I think we'll be watching is whether or not CJ Beathard is going to be, is going to be able to avoid being ragdolled long enough to take advantage of the Cardinals air quotes defense. The Cardinals defense allows a successful play on 65% of early down attempts, which means we're likely, hopefully going to see a lot of CJ Beathard on first downs, slanging that ball and hopefully not getting pile driven into the turf. Uh, I mean, so their pass rush has been uh, problematic so far this year. So uh, right now they are 29th in our uh, kind of team level pass rushing grades. Not great. Chandler Jones, who has been uh, really phenomenal since he's been with Arizona uh, and has given the Niners problems in the past, like hasn't been off to a good start. And they just really don't have anyone there that's been getting after the passer consistently. So that's been a problem. I mean, really, the only thing right now that's been kind of a constant with their defense is Patrick Peterson. He's still been playing great. Uh, it will be interesting to see what he does, whether he like he's, he's a guy that will shadow a receiver around. He's done that with uh, Garcon, I believe, last year. Uh, it'll be interesting to see, one, if he does that in this game with kind of where the 49ers offense is at. And two, who it is, right? Like, is it going to be Goodwin now? Like, is, is Goodwin getting that level of respect if he's out there and and uh in healthy so uh, i think that'll be interesting to see what they do with him but right now this is a game where you're looking at uh, on the injury report today 
the 49ers' three most important offensive linemen and Staley, McGlinchey, and Richburg all didn't practice. And, and I think there there's like disaster looming potentially if if this offensive line has to go in without I don't know either even two of those guys right if they don't play. I think Staley's the only one who's I think doubtful or ruled out. Yeah. I forget exactly where he's at, but his injury is the most significant. Apparently, he's been having trouble with that knee for a while, right? Uh, and it dates back to last season. It might date back to the Staley screen play. Yeah, uh, I think um, I remember Shanahan mentioned something about that. This has been kind of the same knee, same area uh, that's been giving him issues for a few years now. So, uh, yeah, not certainly not great. And, you know, tackle is going to be so again, like going back to now Chandler Jones, like off to kind of a sluggish start. Is this the game that he gets uh, back, on back on track or, is, or do they kind of continue to struggle from a pass rush standpoint? give Bethard some more clean pockets, which I think is very beneficial for obviously him and the 49ers offense. Now, one of the other matchups to watch, of course, is going to be a former 49er on a current 49er. And that's one Mr. Antoine Bethay on George Kittle. George Kittle is now a player that defenses have to account for. They have to. Uh, it was interesting to see the Chargers really account for him because they played they played Derwin James on him a lot of the Derwin game. Derwin was on him a lot. And, yep. and that's, I mean, he we said he was going to be a tight end eraser in the NFL, and he didn't quite erase Good old George Kittle. I mean, Kittle's best plays were away all, from away from Derwin yeah. James, to be fair. But yeah, I mean, he obviously, as we talked about earlier, had his share of yep. wins as well. And Antoine Bethea actually had a good season last year. He he was back to kind of peak 49er form when he was with the 49ers. Of course, he had a bit of an up and down and then was eventually released. But uh, this year hasn't gotten back up to that kind of above average or high level of play that Bethea is used to. And maybe Father Time is catching up with him. So it will be interesting to see if George Kittle is able to take advantage of that. If if I'm if I'm the defensive coordinator for the Cardinals, I'm probably going to have Garcon shadowed by Peterson only because I think you're probably going to have the safety over the top of Goodwin. So you put your lesser corner on Goodwin and and then you've got your safety over the top to help because that's really what what Goodwin can defeat you with. And then you've got Bethay on Kittle. And that's, I think, a mismatch currently. I think Kittle takes advantage of that. And I think that's where they're going to attack often. Even when Bethay was in San Francisco, right? Uh, you wouldn't say at that stage of his career that athleticism was his strong suit. You know, it was no, he had that veteran savvy, right? But there would still be plays where it was like very clear that he just like couldn't keep up with guys who were better athletes than he was. Uh, I think Kittle is very much that right now. Like there's no chance in like a one-on-one matchup that Bethay is going to be able to stick with him athletically. So I think, yeah, try to, trying to get him uh, isolated on Bethay, get him kind of going down the field where he can use that athleticism, be able to separate a bit. I think that's going to be kind of a, an area where the 49ers should be able to take advantage. All right, so what's your prediction then? You think that the Vegas line is the Niners are favored by four and a half points. They're on the road. So no, Niners are at home. Oh, that's right. They're yeah. at home. They've been on the road for like three out of their four games. So I, yeah. I got confused a little there, but they're at home. So it's it's closer to a push than you would like for a team this bad. But hey, it's it's good old case Jarrett. So what can you expect? Uh, you think the Niners cover? I think no. Uh, I, I think four and a half is pretty high uh, for where they're at. I, I think that I, I mean, unfortunately, with as much shit as we just talked about the Cardinals, like I don't think that there is a huge separation between these teams right now. You know, when you factor in, again, all of the injuries and everything the 49ers are dealing with right now uh, and just like their defense not being very good. I mean, their 49ers defense has been the worst in football so far through the first month. So uh, they've really been struggling there. I think you have a little bit of hope. I mean, it'll be interesting to see what happens with Rosen, obviously, going forward and whether he can kind of keep up that level of play that he had last week uh, in the long term. So that's certainly a major question mark and unknown. But 
I, I think four and a half with where these teams have played, you know, how they've played through the first month seems high. So I would not pick them to cover. I do feel like they can find a way to get a win here, get a win at home. But I think it's close. I think it's something that's close throughout. Uh, the over is uh, over under is at 41. I think they get no, it's like a like a 2022 game, 2023 game. Yeah. So I think right right in that area, that, that 24, 21, 23, 20, like, you know, something like that, where a field goal is probably winning this thing late or something like that. Yeah, I think the Niners definitely win uh, as much as I can definitely say they're going to win any game this season. Yeah. And <laughs> this is there. I mean, they got the two games against the Cardinals coming up in the next four, I believe. Four so, weeks, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. These are these are their uh, opportunities here. To, That's to right. Get they're going to start their climb back to uh, back to 500. Hey, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't mind, though. Elegant tank. Uh, maybe it's the Cardinals to get a late field goal to win this. No, I. Oh, God. Elegant tank it. That's that's this. Okay, so this is what the elegant tank means. The elegant tank means that the Niners push the Cardinals to the limit and then lose like in overtime or lose in the fourth quarter. Remember last season, they had five games that were lost by less than one score, which was a record, I think, in the NFL. So that's uh, I'm going to go ahead and say they win, but but don't cover. I was wrong. I was the only one who was wrong. Both you and Jared were right last week. You said, uh, they were going to lose and, and cover, cover. Uh, and I said lose. A lot of cover. points, man. Ten is a lot. Yeah, but uh, but yeah. So I think again that they win, but don't cover against the, the char- uh, against Cardinals. Here's what I think the Niners should do. Here's here's my key strategy. The I think one of the players should have like one of the backup quarterbacks. Maybe Nick Mullins has like a, a wristband with the Niners plays on them, and and then he like just casually drops that somewhere, maybe near uh, a Cardinals coach. And this wristband has like fake plays, plays that make it seem like the Niners are going to do one thing. And then Kyle Shanahan's opening 25 script are plays that actually like run opposite of what that initial wristband says they were going to run. So it's like, I'm going to run a screen. No, it's actually going to be a deep pass. And then they're going to go up like 17 0. I saw you put, I saw you tweet out that article. Oh, dude, it's great. This is, <laughs> I haven't read it yet. This I is say, actually a thing that happened. This happened in 1999 at the Red River, at Red, I can't call it the Red River rivalry. It's, or Red Sorry. River, uh, what, Red River showdown. showdown. No, yeah. man, when I, it's the Red River shootout. <laughs> it's, I, I get why they don't call it the shootout. Robert, that's just too many R's. It I is. Can't handle it is a lot. It's a Red River rivalry. <laughs> The Rurgers. exactly how it would sound if I had to <laughs> the, say it. The Rurgers. But Mike Leach, as the offensive coordinator for Oklahoma in 1999, created, spent almost an entire week creating a fake call sheet that he actually had to put thought into and say, oh, I, you know, I, I want the call to sound like something we would call, but it has to be terminology that, that they can understand because if it's just, you know, bullshit terminology, then they're not going to know what the hell's there. And then I'm actually going to get them to think like, oh, the first play is going to be a screen. And then I'm actually going to call a play that throws a receiver into that void. And I mean, this was a highly ranked Texas team going up against an unranked, uh, unranked Oklahoma team. It was the first year in Bob Stoops' career at Oklahoma uh, or as a head coach at Oklahoma. And the, the Sooners go up 17-0 in the first quarter, first half. Uh, and then finally, the defensive coordinator like, he, he's, realizes it's bullshit and he throws it away. And then eventually Texas wins like 38-24. Oh man, that's uh, Mike Leach uh, is just hilarious. There was uh, somebody tweeted out a clip from him uh, of like a recent press conference this week where he was talking about like somebody asked him about the idea of balance, right? Because there, I mean, at this point, at this stage at Washington State, he's just chucking it chucking everywhere, it. and he's and he went off on balance, right, and how like coaches 
have this like weird idea of balance being 50% pass, 50% run. And he's like, to me, that's 50% stupid. <laughs> and I was just like, yes, the hero we need right now, Mike Leach going, going all in on it. It's just like, uh, yeah, he's, he's a kind of a crazy quirky dude and, uh, does some weird stuff. Very quirky. And, yeah. It, it, but overall very funny. Did you read the Hal mummy book? Uh, I don't think there's a book that's like the, it's like the history of the, I don't know if it's history of the air raid necessarily, but it, it dives deep into kind of the origin of that offense and how mummy in his time. I don't know that it's a how mummy biography, but it's, yeah, I remember, uh, I do kind of like vaguely remember hearing of that book. I remember, uh, Chris Brown did like an excellent, like deep air raid series that I did read, um, kind of a while back that was just incredible, but uh, yeah, I don't remember the book. All right. Well, I, I have it. Uh, it's on my Kindle for sure. So I'll shoot it your way in case you have any spare time between now and February. Uh, you can read. It's I'm a good read. It's a good read. I read it like on a vacation, I think, this summer. So it, it's pretty good. Uh, all right. Well, that about does it for this week's edition of the Better Rivals podcast. Join us again next week when we break down the Cardinals game. We'll see if we were right or wrong. Uh, and we will, of course, preview the very next game and see if the elegant tank continues. David, where can they follow you with your new fancy fucking handle? Uh, it's going to be at PFF underscore David. Um, I should also be uh, getting where it, it's been kind of crazy start to the season. Things uh, hopefully slowing down you know, just a, a tad now. So should actually be starting to write uh, a little bit more for profootballfocus.com. So, uh, yeah, give a, give a check there um, for all of the great articles that the guys have been putting out, even if it's not me. You can always follow me at Better Rivals and make sure that if you are looking for any of our merch, you can find that on TeePublic. The link is pinned to my Twitter page. So, Thanks again for listening, and as always, Go Niners! Hi, I'm Karis Fisher. I want to tell you about another podcast you should check out. It's called Recode Decode. Every week I talk to tech and media's key players about how they're changing our world. I interview tech executives like Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg, political figures like Hillary Clinton, and media personalities like John Carreyou, who literally wrote the book on Theranos. Once again, the name of the show is Recode Decode, hosted by me, Kara Swisher. You can find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. See you there.